Welcome to the sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you have questions related to what you hear today, or just want to find out more about the ministries at First United Methodist Church, please visit us online at fumcbentonville.org, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. We are entering a new sermon series this week, Humble Before History, and we will be looking at famous breakups in our church. Uh, And to get us in that frame of mind, to start out with the first significant one for us, um, I'm going to read a passage from Ezra. It's a passage that I hesitate to refer to as the Word of God. So with that in mind, hear now the Word of the Lord. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and bowing down before God's house, a very large crowd of men, women, and children of Israel gathered around him. The people also wept in distress. Then Shechaniah, Jehiel's son from the family of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the neighboring peoples. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let's now make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children according to the advice of my master and out of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the instruction. Get up, for it is your duty to deal with this matter. We will support you. Be strong and act. So Ezra got up and made the leading priests the Levites, and all Israel take a solemn pledge that they would do as had been said. So they took a solemn pledge. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes that we might see and know the word you have for us this day. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So... Back in the early days of Facebook, when they were trying to figure out the algorithms, instead of something appearing directly in your thread, oh, you like this, you might also like this, it appeared to the side. There was a little bar on the side that said, oh, if you like so-and-so, you might also like such-and-such, right? Well, in those early days, I had gone out and liked the Arkansas Razorbacks. And pretty soon after I did that, on my sidebar, it said, oh, you like the Arkansas Razorbacks? You might also like God. (laughs) Now, I don't know if it was saying that Razorback country is God's country, or if it was saying Razorbacks need to pray a lot. (laughs) Could be either. Um, but nonetheless, there was some connection there. And this reminded me when I saw that, I thought, you know, it's really true that people or groups will a lot of times lay claim to God, and especially when they win. And we hear this oftentimes in, in sports, like the football team that wins will say, God was with us. We don't ever hear the other team go, God just really didn't like us today, you know? <laughs> But, but there is that tendency to lay claim to God whenever things are going well. In, it's even in our expression, there but for the grace of God go I. Which is, if you stop and think about it, a really terrible expression. 
It's saying as if we are more entitled to grace, those of us that things are going well for, are more entitled for grace than those who are struggling. And that is just not how God works. In fact, it's far more often, at least from the biblical witness and from what we know of history and time, that God is more likely to be alongside those who are struggling and be especially present in those places. So in this series, Humble Before History, where I mentioned that we're going to be looking at famous breakups in our time as a church, we're going to be looking at those famous divisions, we are going to see how God works in the midst of some pretty tough and struggling conditions. And we're also going to see the tension in the acts of humans and then the work that God does in spite of the decisions and the mess that we make. And we're going to start with a couple of instances in history where people specifically use God to justify their own actions and to consolidate power. And this is something that we should constantly be aware of, especially in times of division, because oftentimes when people are seeking a justification for why they should divide the family of God, they try to find ways to prove that God is on their side. So we're going to look at these two moments in history, and we're going to start with this one that was referred to in Ezra that I just read uh, to all of you. And we're going to remember that this is following the exile. This is when the people, the Israelite people have been given permission to return to rebuild the temple. They've been granted that and even charged with that responsibility. Now, remember how the exile happened, how Babylon liked to to navigate things in the exile was that they would take the best and the brightest and the most elite and take them off to Babylon and they would leave the poorest in the land. And then they would move people, other poor people from other parts of places that they had conquered and mix them all together so that the people were forced to recognize that the dominant culture they had in common was that of their oppressors, that of Babylon. And what happens when they scattered all of these people together is that, yes, they did intermarry. But many of the people that are being referred to in the passage that I just read to were also Israelite people. They were the people that had been left behind 70 years ago and had stayed in the land and had continued to worship the same God that Ezra's people are proclaiming. And yes, they had married people from other cultures, but they had continued to worship the God of Israel. These people that had stayed and maintained become known as the Samaritans. Now, as these folks with this privilege have returned back and have seen it as their responsibility to rebuild the temple, one of the things that they need to do in order to do that is to consolidate their power. And one way to consolidate power, especially when religion is involved, is to define orthodoxy, to define what is right practice. And so they use passages in the scriptures that will say that it is wrong to intermarry and will bring that up and highlight that and proclaim that as central to the law. And they will use that to credit to God to seal the deal that we're supposed to worship only this one God and to have foreign women and children will corrupt that idea. But in order to insist on that reality, they have to deny a major tenet of the Bible in order to do it. 
all throughout the biblical witness, it reminds us that we are to care for and protect widows and orphans. We are not to create widows and orphans, which is what this work does. It creates widows and orphans. It makes people vulnerable and leaves them in awful conditions. So effectively what they are doing is driving people out in the name of God by defying God. Incredibly problematic reality in our biblical witness. Now let's jump forward to another moment in history Good one to celebrate on Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday is always whatever Sunday is closest to Halloween. I don't know what that says about the Reformation, but there we go. But the creation of the Church of England. Let's look at that. So Henry VIII was a fierce defender of Catholicism. He was a strong believer in the faith, so strong that when Martin Luther came forward and put his 95 theses out there, Henry VIII wrote a treatise against Luther, and it was such a powerful and well-argued treatise that the Pope referred to Henry VIII as the defender of the faith. So here he was, staunchly supporting Catholicism, until, until he has this wife who only gives him a girl. And now he's got a problem. And so he, he also has a problem in that there's a really young, hot woman in the ladies-in-waiting as well that he has become attracted to and started a fling with. And so he needs this marriage with Catherine of Aragon annulled. So he goes to Pope Clement VII and asks for an annulment, and the Pope says nope. And that leads... Henry VIII to appoint Thomas Cranmer as the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's a good buddy of Henry VIII. And he argued for the supremacy of the king over the church in his lands. And the Archbishop of Canterbury declared the marriage to Catherine invalid, which then Henry married Anne Boleyn, which then the Pope excommunicated Henry VIII, And so Henry seized power over the church and their property and then argued for Parliament to pass the Act of Supremacy, which says that the king is the supreme head of the church. Interesting little jaunt into history that I made this week in preparation for this sermon. You know what I couldn't find? A theological justification for any of this. Nowhere. The only thing that I found was Henry's original argument for why the marriage with Catherine of Aragon should have been annulled. He pulled one verse from Leviticus, 20, 21. By the way, if you're pulling one verse from Leviticus, heads up, right? Um, He says, if a man marries his brother's wife, it is indecent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. The man and the woman will be childless. Catherine of Aragon was his brother's wife. But he married her after his brother died, which there are also passages in Leviticus that specifically instruct you that if your brother dies and leaves no children, you should marry his wife. So actually, he did exactly what the Bible instructs to do. That particular verse from Leviticus is only if you marry your brother's wife while your brother is still alive. It's playing fast and loose here with the Bible, as people tend to do. 
So there are all kinds of moments in history where people have laid claim to the power of God for their own personal benefit in all honesty. And yet the astounding thing is in the midst of it, God still lays claim to us. When we seek where God is in these situations, it's best not to affirm that God is in the moment of the winning football team here. We need to beware of theological arguments that rely on proof texting, which is taking one verse out of context and blowing it up into a whole theology. Or any time that you contradict a dominant theme throughout the Bible, any time those things happen, we need to be aware and beware of what is coming. Because in both of these cases in which that happened, there were profound repercussions. In Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is a continuation of this us versus them that honestly we are still wrestling with in that part of the property of the world to this day. And when it comes to what happened in the history of the United Kingdom, Yes, for a little while they are Protestant, and then Mary, Queen of Scots, who becomes known as Bloody Mary, reinstitutes Catholicism, and then her sister Elizabeth comes back and reinstitutes Protestantism, and there's this back and forth, and there is a long and bloody and disastrous history, including all of the violence that took place against the Catholics in Ireland. So we should definitely pay attention when people try to lay claim to God's power for their own benefit. But even in the midst of situations in which people do that, God refuses to be co-opted and God will be present in the redemption in the midst of the mess. There's a verse in Romans that says, God works all things to good for those who love God. And I love that verse, not because it promises that if you love God, you will never have problems. That verse does not say that. What that verse says is that in the midst of whatever is happening, God will be present and work all of the mess as much as possible to good. It's, it's a testament to the infinite creativity of God. It also basically says we're going to make a mess. We're going to give God work, right? But then God invites us as we love God to be part of that creative redemption, that creative work of the Holy Spirit to repair and restore and redeem difficult situations. And we actually see that in these histories as well. Because what happened when they passed those regulations in Ezra and Nehemiah is that the people just basically ignored it. The ones that, the, the wives and the, and the children that did leave, the husbands went with them. Or they refused to go and they stayed and they are the Samaritans. The Samaritans that Jesus points to over and over to show us a good example of true worship and how to love and to invite us to love our neighbor. And when it comes to what happened with the Church of England, well, despite, you know, not the best motives for what happened, England did participate in the Protestant Reformation, which opened up more of the church to more people by use of the vernacular instead of using Latin, made people able to understand their faith better, created a space of inclusion. It also creates a foundation of a church that continues to recognize that we need renewal. And it's going to give birth to the United Methodist Church in a long and winding way. We'll talk more about that next week. 
And then honestly, on a very practical level, it creates an entire strand of Christianity that has a place for people who experience divorce. As someone who faced divorce a few years ago and felt deep shame about that, especially as a leader within the church, I did find some comfort in our own historical reality. And it did remind me that anytime there's a divorce, there's a break of covenant. But sometimes in divorce, what it does is allows people to live more freely into being the people that God is calling them to be. That sometimes what that is is a restoration and a redemption and a healing of a situation that has become so broken. And even when divorce happens in the midst of selfish decisions and true and utter brokenness, God does not abandon that space, but still seeks healing and wholeness and restoration there as well. We are going to mess up, and yet God will still lay claim to us. What a powerful thing to be able to say that we don't have to be perfect. Thank God. We are all going to mess up from time to time. But when we stop and we turn to God and say, "Ah, I did mess up. I'm going to bring my mess to you. Then God can say, well, let's, let's see what we can do with this. Let's be creative. Let's find a way towards healing in the midst of it. Because after all, God still loves the Arkansas Razorbacks. And God still loves us too. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you would like to let us know you were here, follow the link below to connect. To participate in worship through giving, you can give online at fumcbentonville.org or on Venmo at fumcbentonville. FUMC Bentonville welcomes all. Because we believe the communion table is God's table, we invite everyone into our church family. We welcome and celebrate every race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, age, physical and mental ability, national origin, economic station, and political ideology. We come together in action and outreach, aspiring to follow Jesus' example of radical hospitality, love, and grace as a transformative movement in our community. Please join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., both in person and on Facebook Live. All are welcome, and we'd love to have you with us. Grace and peace.